So, Lord, would you just come by your spirit? Would you come and release revelation tonight? You're the great teacher, so teach us. God, I'm asking you to release understanding about the end of the age, that we would comprehend what it is you're doing in the earth, your will and your way. We want to know you. We want to know you. So God, I pray, open up the scriptures and speak to our hearts. God, I pray you'd release revelation. Deliver us. Deliver us from every way that's not like you. Every thought that we have that's not like you. Good, so we come under the Holy Spirit right now. We come under the Spirit of God right now to receive your direction, your correction in our lives. Good. We thank you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Turn with me in your Bible over to Malachi chapter 3. We are going to continue in a series that we've been on for the last several weeks titled The Forerunner Mandate, talking about being a people prepared for the coming of the Lord, a people who will, who will prepare the way people who are prepared in heart and a people who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord to the earth. Some time ago, I began to realize that many believe that we're living in the generation that will see the Lord return. Yet, and myself included, very few, including me, had any kind of picture of what that would require of me or what uh, that would look like in the earth. We just sort of glad about Jesus coming back. But if you uh, look in the scriptures, you'll find that there is a massive amount of prophetic information that gives us really clear detail as to what the activities of the end of this age will be. And I believe it's very important for us to get a clear picture as to what the scripture says, not only of what, uh, about what will happen, but what the scripture says about who God is in that and then also uh, the, the appropriate way for us to conduct ourselves in, in light of the activities of the end of this age. Most don't have a real clear understanding of what, about what's going to happen at the end of the age and uh, in the return of the Lord. But uh, there's many, many uh, prophetic details that the scriptures unfold for us. And so to not pay attention to the 150 plus chapters... I. I'm, I'm, I'm compiling a list right now, and I'm up to 165 chapters that talk about the end of this age or the next age in the Bible. If we didn't pay attention to those 165 chapters, that would be fairly irresponsible, I think. There's 89 that are in the Gospels, 89 chapters that are in the Gospels, and 165 in this, throughout the Bible that talk about the end of this age. So there's actually more prophetic information about the end of the age than there is in the Gospels, the whole, the whole, the whole teaching of the, the four Gospels. And so, in Malachi, we want to uh, take a look at these verses that we've looked at the last several weeks, because Malachi asks a really intense question, and that's what we're trying to answer. I thought we could answer the question in one week, but now I think we're on our third week of trying to answer one question. So we... <laughs> We might stay on this series for a little bit of time, but I think it's good. It's who we're called to be, forerunners at the end of the age, people that are uh, 
preparing the way for the Lord's return. And therefore, we need to take our time with this and allow these thoughts, these verses, to go deep within the, the foundation of who we are. So Malachi 3.1, let's look at it. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant. So he mentions messengers. There's a messenger that goes before to prepare the way. And then there's the messenger of the covenant. The messenger that prepares the way. I believe that's an individual. And I believe it's also a company. It's simultaneously both. It's a company of people and a single individual. And then the messenger of the covenant. That's the Lord Jesus himself. And so I believe he's telling us about a messenger company who at the end of the age is tasked with preparing the way of the Lord in his second coming to the earth. And it says, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so then just to read between the lines there, because he, he starts verse 2 with, but who can endure the day of his coming? To read between the lines, you can almost get it this way because he goes, he's the one that you're seeking, he's the one that you delight in, but you have no idea what it's going to be like when he comes. You have no idea what this is about, and therefore, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can, he's talking to people that believe they delight in the idea of the Lord's return to the planet, and he goes, who can endure this? Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand? Who can stand when he appears? And those verses, those questions from the mouth of the prophet Malachi, they are penetrating. They are probing. I, when I read them, I feel like the spotlight, the lamp of the Lord is shining upon my heart, and I'm instantly have, I instantly have to give an account for the reality of my life. The idea is he's standing there and saying, can you endure it? Can you stand? You know, I... It's always helpful when you take the verse and instead of making it about them out there somewhere to dial it out, dial it down real tight and to make it about you right here, right now. Can you endure it? Can I endure it? Can I stand? Well, why would you ask that, Malachi? And he says, because when he comes, it's coming like a refiner's fire. He's coming like a, a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He's coming to purify. He's coming to set aflame everything that's flammable, to burn up everything that can be burned. He's coming to purify every individual. He's coming to remove wickedness from the planet along with those who join themselves to wickedness. He's coming to remove everything that's in the way of holiness manifest. Who can endure? Who can stand? And so we are, we've been trying to answer this question, who can stand? 
A few weeks ago, we talked about standing in his counsel as, as the necessity that we might stand when he appears. If we'll stand in his counsel and let his word mark us, then we'll have a comprehension of who he is, and the right knowledge of God will direct us, direct our hearts, and give us the ability to stand. And then we talked about the next week about standing, this is last week, without offense before the Lord. In other words, standing with a heart that doesn't offend him standing in purity abounding in love and being blameless in holiness without offense before the lord and we talked about the sway and the influence of the babylonian harlot system and how the 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 the, uh, normal sensation in society right now falls under the sway of the babylonian harlot system and for us the believers to be able to stand without offense before the lord we have got to get out of that influence completely out of it so that in the day when that's judged we don't uh take part in her sin and we don't take part in her judgment we talked about that in detail last week standing in purity now that we can stand blameless before him in holiness then and then today, today we're going to talk about standing without offense toward him, unoffended by him. Last week we talked about not being an offense to him, but this week we're going to talk about not being offended by Jesus. And this, this word is, it's, I mean, I, last week was really intense, but this one's really intense if you're wanting a break on Sunday, don't come, because I don't think we're going to get a break in a, in, a few, in a few weeks. These are intense thoughts that we've got to grapple with. And I don't mind being a trumpet blast and, and declaring these things, because ultimately, I believe if we will get prepared today, if we'll take these thoughts uh, seriously from the Scripture, we will become prepared, we will live differently, we'll spend our money differently, we'll spend our time differently, and we'll raise our children different, differently, and ultimately we'll be a community of faith that's ready to, to stand and to prepare the way before the Lord. And I'm not, not, not just talking about this community, but anybody who's listening, those who listen by the internet or just our whole city, I'm looking for a city that would be ready to uh, stand in the day that the Lord appears. And so, I want to talk about that. Standing without offense. Standing without being offended by him. Now, I think that one of the key issues to standing unoffended by him is that we derive our image of God solely from what the scripture says about him. And I think when we deviate from that, automatically what will happen is this. If we do not derive our understanding of who God is from the scripture, we will automatically begin to make a God that's like ourselves. Rather than seeing him as a God who made us in his image, we will make him to be a God in our own image. And when we do not have a clear biblical picture, a clear image in our mind of who he is, we are set up for offense when he reveals himself in a way that's not the way that we think him to be. I think that we've gotten, myself included, very little grid, very little understanding of the God who delights 
in mercy. He loves mercy and releases judgment. For in our minds, those two ideas are contradictory. For if one delights in mercy, how can he be the one that drops the hammer of judgment? And I would say this, that he is a God that loves mercy and he loves justice. He is a God who is kind and tender and his fire is full of vengeance and wrath against everything that hinders love. He is a God that operates in both of those realities all at the same time without contradiction. And the question becomes, do we love the God who does judgment in the same way that we love God who delights in mercy? Do we love the reality of who he is, all that he is, or do we simply love certain facets of him? I know you and I have done this. You read the scripture, and you get the one verse that really makes you feel good. And you, you just, yeah, that's a good verse. And you go, hey, I wonder if there's any other good verses in this chapter. And you read some other parts of the chapter, and it's like talking about God's going to release vindication and judgment and slay the wicked. And you're like, ooh, let's, okay, let's just stay back on that one good verse. Just, my heart can't handle the other. I don't want to know who you are in that way. Jesus, just be something to me that I can handle because I can't deal with these other verses. Or we read and we go, surely they don't mean that. They mean something else. I don't know what they mean, but let me just focus on the one that makes me feel good. Come on. And so I think we end up with a massive disconnect in our hearts between the Jesus who's the Savior of the world and Jesus, the one who actually releases the great tribulation. It's the same guy, beloved. Jesus, the savior of the world is Jesus who releases the great tribulation. We love the Jesus that shed his blood for us, but we have almost no understanding of the Jesus that is going to shed his, uh, shed the blood of people when he returns. And yet there are scripture after scripture after scripture after scripture that identifies him as the one who treads the winepress of the wrath of God. And in Isaiah 63, he's, de- he's uh, described and he describes himself as covered with the blood of people whom he has slain in Isaiah 63. And so, and there's, I mean, those are just the two like big ones. I'm, I'm thinking of, well, I'm thinking of three big ones. I'm thinking of Revelation 14. Treading the winepress of the wrath of God. Isaiah 63, treading the nations with people's blood on him. And then I'm also thinking of the uh, Revelation 19, where he's slaying all the wicked. This is our Jesus. And beloved, we cannot play buffet-style Bible study. We can't. We, we aren't afforded the option to like him in a certain facet of his nature and despise him in another facet of his nature, that, we cannot do that. We've got to find out who he is and all the different facets and realize that all the attributes of God are totally congruent with with, with each of the other attributes of God. 
And that all that he is is without contradiction. And we've got to love Jesus who does mercy. And we've got to love Jesus to whom the Father has committed all judgment. Love him dramatically and radically in, in all realities of his nature. I was thinking about the disciples who spent three and a half years with Jesus. Especially Peter, James, and John. I'm thinking about the night in which he was betrayed. And you know, they, they do the Passover meal together. And I mean, they're having a wonderful time. They're, they're enjoying each other's company. It's getting tender. I mean, John is there laying his head on Jesus' chest. I mean, it's, it's a, they're having a sweet time of fellowship amongst them. And Jesus begins to talk in a way that's confusing them. He says, the one that dips uh, the bread in, in, in the bowl with me, that one, he's going to betray me. They're, they said, betray you? Who, 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 is it me? Who is it? And he's talking in a way that they, they, they don't understand. But, but tons of the stuff he said they didn't understand. You can go through it and you can re, you read it. And so many times he said stuff to them and they just didn't get it. And then he says this. He goes, hey, this Passover. He just says it in, in basically in plain terms. He just basically says, I'm the fulfillment of it. He goes, this is the New Testament. This bread that we're going to take, that's, that's my body. And this cup that we're drinking, it's the new covenant in my blood. And it's shed for the remission of sins. And they're, they're listening to that and they're going through it. And they do not get it. And they sing a hymn. And he's, he is explaining some really intense stuff. And they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives. And he says, hey, Pete, James, John, come with me. Come on over here and pray. Do you think, you know, if they understood that he was talking about his own crucifixion that was going to happen in a few hours, do you think there's any chance they would have fallen asleep on that? They didn't get it. They fall asleep. Jesus is sweating drops of blood because he's bearing the entire sin of all humankind forever. And then Judas comes with the, with the soldiers. And, and Jesus had told Peter that night. I mean, I was thinking about Peter. He told Peter that night. He goes, listen, you're going you're gonna to betray me. He goes, no, Lord, I won't betray you. I, there's no way I'll betray you. I've already, I've already given up my business and my life. Everybody already thinks I'm a little strange. I'm not going to betray you. I've been following you for three and a half years. I'm pretty confident of this, Jesus. I know you and I love you and I'm not going to betray you, Jesus. He goes, Pete, you're going to deny me three times. And in fact, all of you, will fall away this night because of me. They wanted him to be a leader that would take over and, and finalize some sort of movement against the Romans. And instead, that night, Jesus reveals himself as the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And they see their friend that night broken and beaten and bruised and abused by Roman soldiers, and they look at him, and all the disciples flee. They all forsake him that night. And Peter, in his confidence, ends up denying him three times. Beloved, let me ask you this. If his best friends who'd been with him for three and a half years 
are offended and flee at the revelation of him as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What will happen to believers, let's just use the West because that's where we're at, to believers in, in the West who are used to Western Christianity as the norm, what will happen to that group if his best friends uh, were offended by Jesus when in his revelation as the lamb. What will happen to believers in the West when Jesus reveals himself as the lion? What will happen if all the disciples forsook him and fled in his revelation as the lamb what will happen when he arises? The Bible says he will arise to shake the earth mightily. And I'm, I have a tremble in my heart. And I think the most pastoral thing I could possibly do is sound a trumpet blast and call us to the knowledge of God. Tell us to find out who he is. I promise you, it's way more pastoral for me to call you to a knowledge of God in view of the end of the age than to give you five financial tips uh, on how to manage your money through the economic crisis. I promise you. Not that five tips wouldn't be good. (laughs) If you have them given to me after the service. And so here's my thing. If we don't have an image of who he is that's, reality from the scripture, not fantasy from our own hearts and minds, but reality from the scripture. If we don't have a revelation of who he is, we are setting ourselves up for offense in the day that he's revealed. We are setting ourselves up to fall away in the day that he comes. Beloved, we have a calling. We have a, a gift from heaven. We are called as, as the bride of Christ, to stand with him in partnership, to love him and partner with him when he releases judgment. We almost have no palate for Jesus that even does judgment, much less be ones that stand by his side in agreement at the heart level with him to see the judgments released. We've got to come to know him so that we're not offended by him. The key, the key to ridding ourselves of offense is intimacy. It's intimacy. Coming to know him for all that he is, falling in love with him, not solely as the bridegroom or as the the yearning father, but falling in love with him as the king of the nations and the judge of all created. We've got to love him. When we will give ourselves to intimacy, it will take us into partnership. We will love him regardless of of what he is because we'll see him as he is and we'll fall in love with him and we'll comprehend that all he does is just and true. Just and true is all that he does. And we can partner with him in that. I want to embrace his ways I want to know and embrace his ways. I want to fall in love with him. And I want to say, yes, all your ways are just and true without any offense in my heart toward him in the way that he leads. Nobody leads like Jesus. And I'll tell you this, nobody is as tender and as kind as Jesus. 
and nobody is as severe as Jesus. Behold, the goodness and the severity of God. We have got to know him in all the facets of who he is. Now turn with me over to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Jesus is sent, he sends, or I'm sorry, John sends his disciples to Jesus. He says, ask him. Ask him if he's the coming one. John's not doing it for his own benefit. John knows, he goes, he must increase, I must decrease. John knows he is moving to the day where his head will be removed from his body. He gets that. He's trying to get his disciples connected to Jesus. Ask him if he's the coming one or if there's another. So his disciples, John's disciples go to Jesus and ask the questions. Jesus gives them a list. He goes, well, tell John everything you've seen. And what they get to see are signs, wonders, and miracles in abundance. They go, oh, my goodness. I believe he's the one, John. But the the last little thing after Jesus gives the list in verse 6, he says, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. I mean, he says all these things. The, the lepers are cleansed. The blind are seen. The deaf are here. Everybody's ex- experiencing power encounters with God and blessed whoever's not offended with me. It's kind of a weird little tagline. Why would you be offended with signs, wonders, and miracles, Jesus? Because that's not all I am. Blessed is he who's not offended because of me. That word offended shows up primarily in the New Testament. It's the, the, the Greek word behind it is this word, it's skandalizo. The verb form is the Greek word skandalizo, and the, the noun form, just an, an offense, that's scandalon. It's where we get the term scandalized. And I don't usually read from, the, uh, from Bible dictionaries in our, in, our, in our meetings, but this one is too good to pass up. Thayer's Greek Definitions. On this word, scandalizo. It says to put a stumbling block or an impediment in the way upon which another may trip and fall. He goes, blessed is he who is not scandalizoed by me, tripped up and fall because of me. And then another definition of it, it said, uh, it's to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. Scandalito. And, and then another one is just simply to cause to fall away. In fact, most of the time when you see this word in the NIV and the NAS, it doesn't show up as offense. It shows up as fall away. It doesn't say they were offended. It says they fell away. Because it's the same activity. You get offended unto falling away. <laughs> And the NIV and the NAS, they render it that way here and in other verses. And then this one I thought was very interesting. It says, this t- verb is, it's to be offended in one. In other words, to see in one what I disapprove of and what hinders me from, a- uh, from actually acknowledging his authority. What it's talking about is seeing an attribute in God that you disapprove of And therefore, it causes you to not acknowledge who he is as God. Scandalizo. 
Now turn over to Romans 9, verse 33. I pray this puts a tremble in you as it, as it is with me. Romans 9, 33. Paul, speaking of Jesus, he's quoting Isaiah. And he says, as it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. That's the Greek word scandalon. A stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The way Isaiah says it, he is the Lord of hosts is a stumbling stone and he's a rock of offense. The Lord of hosts is Jesus. He's the captain of the angelic armies of God. And Isaiah is looking at him and he says, Jesus as the one who's the captain of the angelic armies of heaven, the one who is going to come and release the judgment of God in in power and might and slay nations that oppose him, nations that are made of people, and slay those that oppose him. He is a stumbling stone. And he is a rock that causes offense. And the way Isaiah says it, he actually attributes that name to him. And I thought about that. I thought, Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the rock. That's his name, the rock. We love him as the rock, don't we? We love him as the rock that's the sure foundation. We love him as the rock that's the shelter. We love him as the rock that when everything is going uh, challenging in our life and that when we don't have a, a, a sure footing that we can hold on to Jesus and he will stabilize us. We love him as the rock that's the comforter of our soul. We love Jesus as the rock, the one that's immovable. But do we love him, beloved, as the one who is the immovable rock of offense? Oh my, Jesus is the rock. What kind of rock? I don't want to know what kind of rock he is. He's just the rock. No, I think we better find out what kind of rock he is. He is the rock of offense. The man's name is the rock of offense. The man's name is the stumbling stone. Well, I've got to say this, that if he, was not, if, if he wasn't really offensive, there's no way you could rightly give him that term, give him that title. He must be so incredibly offensive to, to, you know, to most people. He must be incredibly offensive for, us to, for the Lord to be able to say that about him and for it to be truth. He is a rock that is designed to cause people to be offended. He is the scandal on. He is that which causes people to trip and fall. Jesus himself. We love Jesus the rock. Do we love Jesus the offender? Do you see what I'm saying? This is intense. Because think about it. We go to churches. We walk in the door. And we like it so long as it ministers to our needs. But as soon as we get offended... We want to go somewhere else that makes us feel what? More comfortable. Wow! That's so bad. That's just so bad. I mean, ow! That's crazy. Jesus is the rock that causes offense, beloved. This is who he is. He is the rock of scandal on. 
And I was thinking about what that means. <laughs> he is the one that is completely sure, completely secure, completely settled and set. And he doesn't mind if people don't like what he says and they don't agree with his unpopular message. He is a foundation stone, a sure cornerstone. He called himself the stone which the builders rejected. Over and over and over, he he quoted Psalm 118 and called himself that. I'm the stone which the builders rejected. He goes, I've become the chief cornerstone. Why do you think the Pharisees rejected him? Because he was offensive. And Jesus is not one who will be moved or manipulated one little bit. He is a rock of offense. He says the thing that's truth, people get offended, and he doesn't move an inch. He can't be manipulated. He can't be swayed. He can't be influenced. He is set. He is a rock. You know, the the Pharisees got offended with Jesus and and the disciples came back and they said, hey, do you realize they're offended? And he said, yeah. He goes, "Just, just leave them alone. Just let them be offended. Yeah, I thought that was interesting because Jesus is so secure. He's perfect. So he's not in a haughty spirit. He's know what I mean. He doesn't he doesn't slide over into arrogance when he's saying something that's off. You know, offending. I mean, he, he doesn't get off a little bit when he's saying something that's offending. He and and so he's he's perfect in purity and humility and meekness. He's perfect in boldness and he's perfect in truth. So Jesus proclaims the truth, and they come to Jesus. They go, Hey, those guys are offended. He goes, Hey, yeah, just leave them alone. He goes, They're after men's approval more than the approval of God. They're teaching as doctrines of of God, then they're teaching the, 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 the traditions of men as doctrines of God. He goes, they're offended because of their own hearts. Just leave them alone in it. You know, Paul, and I've got to, I've got to go over where Paul was at because Paul said, I do everything I can not to give offense. Because <laughs> Paul, you know, he knew that the, the, the gospel was offensive enough. He didn't need to add his little, you know, little extra salt on it, you know. <laughs> Me and Paul, I'm with Paul. <laughs> I don't need to add a little bit of extra on it because the message is offensive enough. But Jesus, in perfection and truth, he says the the truth that he knows is coming to pierce. He's coming to bring a sword, not just peace. He's coming to bring a sword. He, He drops the sword and he goes, does this offend you? He doesn't run around going, hey, did did you get your feelings hurt with that? I'm I'm so sorry. I want to make you feel comfortable. What can I do to make you feel better? He doesn't do that. He says it as it is, and he lets the chips fall where they may. Because truth is truth, and we have the opportunity from heaven. We are granted the opportunity to agree with truth or not. That's ultimately where it goes. So we've got to find out. We've got to grapple with this. Do we love this one who's the rock of all fence? Or do we want to make a Jesus in our own image, a Jesus that's just like us? You know, most people have this idea that Jesus is, is not offensive. You know, the idea that there's this offensive side to Jesus, that's mostly not in our mentalities. 
And we want to make Jesus not offensive. We want to make him palatable. We want to make him easy for the unsanctified masses to receive. And I tell you, that's not who he is. In our society, it's politically incorrect to say that Jesus is the only way to get to God. If you say Jesus is the only way, it's offensive. It's politically incorrect. People will, they will call you everything. They'll call you a bigot. They'll call you narrow-minded. They'll call you dogmatic. But beloved, guess what? Jesus is the only way to get to God. And I just want to say real loud, Jesus is not the same God as the gods of the other religions. Beloved, Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way to get to the Father but by Jesus. And we have got to get secure in our knowledge of who God is because when the lights come on and the microphone gets in front of you and you're in front of the nation with the interviewer, I'm going to tell you, we don't know what that kind of pressure is like to say something that sort of just makes everybody feel good. But we've got to get a root system of truth and reality in God that's based in the scripture so deep down in our heart. When the pressure comes on us, we say with a tenderness but a boldness, he is the only way to get to heaven. He is the only way to the Father. There is no other way but through him. His blood and his blood alone. And no, he's not the same God that the Muslims are praying to. There's, you know, you know, there's this mentality that if Christianity is this, there's this religion of love that we would sort of embrace other religions and their beliefs. Beloved, that is completely a false idea. We are not to embrace other religions and their ideas. We're to honor all people. And that's huge. To honor the sinner is huge. Most of us don't do that very well. He says, honor all people. Fear God, love the brotherhood. So we're to honor all people, but we are not to embrace the religions of of the false religions out there. We're not to embrace those things as truth. There's this mentality. I'm just sort of going through the prevailing things in society that the popular ways to think. You know, there's this mentality out there that says a loving God would never dot, dot, dot. I, I, m- pretty much every time I've ever heard somebody say to me, a loving God would never, and then the, the, whatever they fill in the blank, pretty much that's always false. <laughs> and the reason why is their picture of the God that they have in their mind, the loving God that they have in their mind, they have no comprehension of the God who is love that also is burning with judgment and wrath. And and what they want to say is a loving God would never do wrath, but they don't understand that the reason why he does wrath is because he's burning in love. He loves men enough that he's not going to sit there and let men go off destroying themselves in sin. Therefore, he's going to move in judgment against sin. Why? Because he loves us. We want the God who lets every sinner go free. We don't have a palate for the God who is love, but actually sends men to hell. We don't have a palate for that. And I've given this example in the past, but I, I, I think it's a good example. If My mom is here. Hey, mom. But if, if my mom got mugged, and I was there, and, I, and, and somebody beat my mom up and stole her purse, 
or your mom, and we went to the judge, and I'm sitting there with my mom, and the judge says, did you see her get mugged? And I said, yes. And he said, is this the man who did it? And I recognize the guy, and I said, yes, that's the guy. That I'm sitting there in that moment, I'm wanting justice for my mom. If that judge is a good judge, you know what he's going to do? He's going to rule for my mom, and he's going to put that guy in jail, isn't he? If he's a good judge. But what we want is we want to say, well, he's a good judge, talking about the Lord. I'm using this as an example. And we want to say he's a good judge, and he lets everybody get off the hook. If that's good, then, then in my analogy, we would, we would sit there and say, I'd say, okay, I want justice for my mom. And the judge would go, well, you don't really understand. I'm a good judge. Therefore, he gets to go free. That's, that's a false mentality. I'm trying to decide how far I want to take you tonight. <laughs> you know, Jesus, so secure, can't be manipulated. He says, uh, I'm the stone that the builders rejected. He goes, and really there's basically two options on this. You can fall on me and be broken, or I can fall on you and crush you. That's Jesus. Fall on me and be broken, or I fall on you and I crush you. We've got to love him like that, beloved. We've got to love him like that. All right, I'm going to try to, I'll try to land us. Turn over to Matthew 24. We're, we're going to start circling, start circling the airport. Matthew 24, verse 9. This is talking about the great tribulation. Jesus is giving us the clearest description of the events of the end of this age uh, that he gives in the scriptures. And in and, and verse you know, four to eight, he gives us global trends. He calls those global trends the beginning of birth pangs. And those global trends, what they are designed for is they are to um, cause us to be attuned to the time of the end. And so these are global trends that happen uh, over time and they bring us into understanding that the time of the end is happening. And so then in verse 9, what happens is it goes from the beginning of birth pangs to the hard labor, to the great tribulation. And the rest of the chapter, he's giving us details of the great tribulation. So say, well, how do you know that's the great tribulation? Because the very first thing he says is, they'll deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. That's it. <laughs> that's called the mark of the beast system. That's what's happening there. Antichrist arises institutes the mark of the beast, and they start killing everybody that won't buy in. Now, just a little side note, just, just for your own little study. L- try to, if you would, try to find a rapture event in there somewhere. It's a little later. Okay. Verse 9. says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. Scandalizo. They'll betray one another and they'll hate one another. They're going to deliver you up to tribulation. They're going to kill you. And all nations will hate you for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. Beloved, this 
is the reality of how it will be in the earth the last three and a half years of this age. All nations will hate those who claim the name Jesus. And martyrdom will explode across the globe in a measure never seen before. And when martyrdom explodes and the nations of the earth hate those who call on the name of Jesus, and not simply call on his name, but stand for his name, many will be offended. The NAS and the NIV say many will fall away. That's talking about believers. That's talking about believers who under the pressure of massive martyrdom and the hatred of all nations, their hearts will get offended because they will say, God, why are you allowing me to go through this? Why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? God, this is not what I signed up for. In fact, this isn't God. And when we don't know him, we stand the risk of attributing what he does to the uh, enemy and saying, that's not God, that's the devil, or being so confused in our heart that we just fall away from him entirely. God is the one that allows these things to happen. Offense is going to grip and dominate many in the church in the great tribulation because of the intense hatred of the nation and the widespread martyrdom of believers. That offense is going to lead to betrayal among brethren and hatred among those who were formerly in the community of faith. Verse 12, right there it says, because of abounding lawlessness, I'm paraphrasing, because of abounding lawlessness, betrayal and deception, the love of many will grow cold because of those things. The love of many will grow cold. Well, you have to have love for it to grow cold, and the only people that know real love are people that know God. This is talking about apostasy because of pressure. This is talking about offense because of tribulation and trial and martyrdom happening in the community of faith. And I want to propose this. If we live right now dealing with offense in our lives because of the issues of personal personal preference and and an entitlement mentality, then we are prime candidates for offense at the end of the age. In other words, I'm saying it this way. If you get offended because you don't get your way in small, insignificant things right now, how will you stand without offense in the day when the whole world hates you because you claim Jesus as your Lord? How will you stand in the day when martyrdom is exploding all around you? Somebody would say, well, God wouldn't allow that to happen. Daniel 11, 33 through 35 describes it. God says this, he will allow those who are of the people of understanding, talking about believers, he will allow some of them to fall by the sword. Why would you do that, Lord? To allow the community of those of understanding to become purified. 
What is it? God allows there to be persecution to come on the church at the end of the age. Why? To kick out the gray areas, to knock all the props, all the choices, all the options out of our lives. Why? Because ultimately he's, he's trying to raise up a bride that's pure and spotless without offense. So he allows oppressing to come. I love how Isaiah says it. He says, God creates the blacksmith who blows on the coals to cause the flame to get hotter, to purify the the gold and the silver. And the great tribulation is that operation by the Lord in the earth. He's allowing the fires of persecution to come on the church unto her ultimate purification and holiness before him in love. And the Bible is clear, beloved. Hear me, clearly, hear me. It's so clear. It says many will be offended because of martyrdom and the hatred of nations against them. How is that possible? How could they be set up for offense? Because they do not deal ruthlessly with the issues of offense in their heart in a day when the stakes are not as high. And so they get offended at little things left and right, and they don't deal ruthlessly with offense in their heart. And so they are set up for a day when pressure is on to be offended in dramatic ways. They will ultimately cost them. They will fall away. You know, just a few months ago, I was experiencing some spiritual pressure, some attack, and uh, it was extending a few days. It was going on for a week. And I found myself, you know, I was rebuking and casting out and quoting the scripture, and it just was getting worse. And I found myself, instead of saying, oh, God, I love you, even in the middle of this uh, pressure and, you know, spiritual warfare, I love you. Instead of saying that, I was going, God... Why are you allowing me to go through this? I love you. Don't you know I love you? What's the deal? You're supposed to be my protector and my shield, my standby, my comforter. God, why are you allowing this to happen? And man, I, I, I'm, all this offense, this junk starts coming up out of my heart. And I started thinking like this. I've done enough to earn your favor. You should act on my behalf. You know what that's called? An entitlement mentality. We believe we deserve better than we're getting, and it's a false idea. We don't deserve, you know what we deserve? We deserve hell. But it's by His grace that we're saved through faith. It's a gift. No one deserves heaven, no one deserves being blessed. And I sat there and I said, I've done so much for you. I don't deserve this. And the Lord, just in his kindness, he goes, oh, really? Really? And I went, oh, I'm offended. I'm offended. I'm offended at you, Lord. That you would allow this to happen to me. I'm offended that you'd make me go through this. I'm offended. I don't love how you lead. And I had to just get down. I just had to repent and say, God, forgive me. 
All your ways are just and true, just and true. All your ways, you lead perfectly. Your head is of the finest gold, and you lead perfectly. You mix together all the ingredients, and you put them in my life to bring me to voluntary love in the highest measure, and only you know what's best for me. I don't. I just had to get down and repent and say, God, please forgive me. And and after I did, I said, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you for allowing that intense pressure to come on me so I could identify the, the, the flaw. I could see the offense. Beloved, I want to say this. Just, I just need to say it clear. If we are living getting offended over petty issues day to day, having to wait too long in the store or you didn't like how that person talked to you or they didn't say hi when they walked past. If we're offended with that stuff, then what is it going to look like in the day when all nations hate Christians and martyrdom explodes across the globe? Come on. One last verse, I'm sorry. Acts 6, I mean Revelation 6, just one last verse. Revelation 6. See, we've got to understand this, that the, those, those conditions in Matthew 24, they don't happen just because. They don't happen by themselves. The scripture is clear. Jesus is the one that makes them happen. The devil doesn't make the great tribulation happen. Jesus does. Jesus does. Revelation 5, 7, it says, then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. That's Jesus. He walks up to the Father and he takes this scroll out of the right hand of the Father and the scroll on it has seven seals. That scroll is God's action plan for the end of the age. In that scroll, there are 21 judgment events. They go in seven judgment sequences and the first sequence of judgments, we know them as the seals. And every time one of the seals is opened, another judgment happens on the earth. And look at Revelation 6.1. Now, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the one who initiates the events of the Great Tribulation. It starts with the first seal. He opens that seal, and this rider on this horse who's given a crown, and he's a conqueror coming to conquer. It's a picture of Antichrist. Jesus Christ opens the seal and begins the events of the great tribulation. Jesus does it. Beloved, do we love him? Do we love Jesus? The one who loves mercy and loves justice. 
the one who's burning in love and manifests wrath. Do we love him? I don't care if you love part of him. I'm asking, do you love all of him? Because, beloved, if we think we love him, but we don't love all of him, I promise you, rather than being forerunners that will prepare the earth for his coming, we will be forerunners in the way of apostasy. We have got to grapple with these issues. We've got to deal with these verses. We've got to fall in love with not our image of who God is, but who the scriptures say he is. We've got to fall in love with the judge the way that we're in love with the bridegroom. We've got to love him. Do we love Jesus, the offense? Jesus, the offender? Do we love Jesus, the judge? Jesus, the tribulator? Jesus, the tribulator. I just want to propose this. If we are playing around with offense and petty problems and we're offended in our heart toward the Lord in this hour, what will it be in the hour in which he initiates judgments and releases great tribulation on the planet? Unoffended in love, partnering with Jesus at the end of this age. Who can stand when he appears without offense in love? Amen.